All right, if you guys have a Bible, turn to the back of it, and uh, we're going to read the whole of Revelation today. I'm just kidding. It's kind of weird, actually. This is the first time preaching not a psalm on a Sunday besides Advent or Easter in a very, very long time. And I'm kind of excited about it. Um, It's just one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood books of the Bible. And of course, right after the longest sermon series that I've ever, ever experienced, we would get into this one. But I believe that we're here for good reason. And it's odd and confusing at times, And but we're going to go through it. And it's going to take about a year and a half, a little less than a year and a half. And once we kind of calculate, calculate in Advent and Easter, in fact, uh, because this, ser- this sermon today is a little bit longer than normal, but that's just so that we can be ready. We can be done with the seven churches by the end of the year. And so um, I firmly believe that this is where God has us. I firmly believe it, not because it's 2020 and it's been post, feels post-apocalyptic at times, not because we are scared of the end times and, and even maybe scared of the fact that they're happening now, not because I thought that if we preach Revelation with a cool graphic arts that it would... Um, stir and attract a crowd, those are reasons why we're not here. And by the way, many pastors and churches do that, right? Like I've seen that many, many times, but um, they've used the the Bible as a tool for hot button issues. And that's not what we're doing Um, because honestly, it was about this time last year that Joanna Dommermuth came up to me and she was like, hey, I would like to go through Revelation. I've never heard anybody go through the whole thing. And I was like, ooh, Okay, like something happened in my soul when she said that, and I was just, I was just stirred, and it resonated with me in, um, in a powerful way, and I spent some time and invited some folks to pray with me about it, and about in October of last year, uh, we, you know, we knew the Psalms were coming to an end, and we decided to preach Revelation, and so this is why we're here, and again, this year, it kind of seems like, oh, well, that makes sense that we'd be here now, but As we saw over and over and again in the Psalms, and in the way that you guys testified about the Psalms as well, God meets us in His use of Scripture in our life. And I fully expect, and I want us to enter in with anticipation, that this will be no different than with the book of Revelation as well. That Jesus will meet us, that He'll convict us, that He'll encourage us, that He will shape us week in and week out as we go through this letter. And I feel like I need to say this. Uh, Once again, just very clear, Revelation was chosen pre-COVID-19, pre-race riots, before it was actually recognized that this is a a political year and a a presidential race. And so before uh, the world went and revealed its chaos to us, we decided to be in this book. And that means to me, this is why I think that's significant, that means God knew. God knew where our world would be like when we entered this. And like people are like, well, I've heard of a lot of people preaching Revelation right now. And I'm not actually disappointed. I don't think they're copycats. I think it's really cool because this book is super helpful for just people in crisis. He knew that we'd need it. He knew that we would need his peace. Amen. He knew that that his Christ, his witness to this world about um, would need to be there in the grandeur of Christ's victory would need to be seen more clearly during this time in the year to come. I have titled this sermon series, 
Revelation, a letter from Jesus about Jesus to churches in crisis. This is because I want us to keep this ever before us. Just a letter from Jesus about Jesus to churches in crisis. We need to be constantly reminded about this, especially when it seems though um, all of it will be uh, like all the weird and difficult sections of Scripture are just rolled into one place in one book, put at the end. And it's placed in the end um, to kind of end with a mystery, a way of inviting us into something that we can't fully understand. Maybe even better than that, we're not supposed to fully understand it. If God could be fully understood, I think then, then at that point he would cease to be God. But in, uh, in all this, I want us to understand this book, Revelation, as a letter from Jesus and about Jesus. And as soon as we leave this fact, it can get really weird really fast. Amen. And I know you guys kind of want some of the weird, but we'll see. We might not get there. And as we are left with this mystery, it's meant to lead us into this unknown world of faith. In my estimation, Revelation has been used for far too long to scare people. It has been used by people who, in my estimation, pretend to know exactly how the end times are going to come about. And if someone comes at the book of Revelation trying to figure out like a Rubik's Cube, I believe that, that they come to the book of Revelation in error. There are very smart, very godly people on every side of the end times debate, on every single time of the end times debate. And we get to enter into this, this mystery, this beautiful mystery, with humility and seeing what God would have for us in the here and now, not just in the future. Much of the Bible has prophetic utterances about the future. Just, just as much as the Old Testament has uh, prophetic utterances about the Messiah and how the Messiah is supposed to come into this world. And it was, um, we need to remember this, we need to keep this in our minds, that it was the smartest, best biblical scholars of Jesus' day who knew how the Messiah was supposed to come, and yet they missed the Christ. They missed him. Not only did they miss him, they nailed him to a cross. And if we enter Revelation to figure it out, we're probably in much as the same danger as those who miss Jesus. That is why I always say that Jesus is supposed to surprise us. We get to, as Christians, we get to seek first the kingdom of God, and we do this one simple step at a time. We have a future hope, but we don't know all the ways that God is going to work out that future hope. We get to walk out in the here and now of our faith, the right now where God has me. We get to be present in that as we walk this out. It's difficult. How many of you guys find it difficult enough to just figure out your faith for today, let alone worry about the future? God's grace is sufficient for the day at hand. It's new when, every morning. Let's live into the grace of today and let God take care of all future events. Amen? We can do that. We can, we can place our trust in Him as we as Christians are constantly reminded to remember the past, to trust Him in the here and now, and to have hope for the future. We live in all three realities that God is over all. He's over the past, the present, and the future. And we are not more or less concerned about either of these at the other's expense. The Bible as a whole, including Re Revelation, has all three times, past, present, 
and future tense present in it. We, uh, we're not going to come at revelation from fear. It's not going to be like scared or fear factor or anything like that. We're not going to come to revelation to solve it. We will come and we will enter into the mystery of our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is a mystery to us and we just get to walk into a fuller understanding of it. We're going to come in humility, allowing some or maybe even many of our questions about this book and about the oddities in it to be unanswered. We will come to revelation and recognize that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is trying to speak into our lives about our lives today, not just our future hope. This book, um, I believe this book is about discipleship during confusing times. It's like, like the ones we have now and the ones that the church, by the way, I believe in history, church, is, like, church history has shown us, the church has always had really confusing times. And we get to enter into these confusing times and be discipled by Christ through them. And if we allow it, this book, this letter from John, well, from Jesus, will expose our fears and our idols. It'll point it out. It'll put a spotlight on them, both as individuals, but also the fears and idols of our culture as well. And I believe even the fears and idols of Grace and Mercy Church as we try to walk out with Jesus. And so let us go into this book willing to be exposed as the frauds that we can be, because we all can be that at times. Because when we are confronted by Jesus, we will also be com comforted by Jesus, amen? And this book invites us to be discipled and corrected and disciplined and leave us changed in a more fit way to follow Christ in this life that he's given us. Along with the mystery, though, we'll also deal with violence and wars. Amen? There's some violence and some wars in here. We'll, we'll deal with judgment and salvation, with death and life, with light and dark, God's justice and His glory. And we'll enter into realms not yet seen, into heavenly places that we haven't seen, but also like heavenly heights and also like the depths of Sheol at the same time. We're going to see it all. It's a very grand book. And we live in a world, we need to keep this in mind as well, we live in a world that is not like the kingdom of God at all. This world is not like God's kingdom. They are so unlike that it sometimes takes real strong, strong language to begin to open us up to the realities of this, the realities of sin in our lives and in our culture. It's ugliness, it's vileness, and all its corrupt nature. That this sin is a real problem. It's a big problem that is in opposition to what God wants for this world. We need this strong language to also open us up to the grandeur of the victorious king and his kingdom that is to come, that we pray to come every single week. Jesus has already won the war. This is truer than our reality but it also reassures us that we get this final picture of Christ that is huge. And we need a big Jesus to deal with our big problems. And we will see Jesus, I believe, in a much, much bigger way. A couple things that I want to say about Revelation before we even get started. Number one, it's a letter. This is a letter, and it's written to churches from their pastor, John. 
Jesus comes and shows a vision to John, and John pens it down to the seven churches. It's not, we need to remember this as I say this, that it's written to churches. This letter is not for individuals. It benefits individuals, but it's written to the churches. It's a corporate letter. And I will do my best throughout this whole thing to try, try not to protect us from the strong rebukes of Jesus because there are times in here where Jesus makes it really uncomfortable for us as Christians, for us as a church. He has strong language. And this is meant to jar us awake and encourage us to walk with Jesus in the way that Jesus wants us to walk with Him. It's not only the Jesus life, it's also the Jesus way. And it was also written, the letter was written to churches in chaos. And like a, a good letter, it's meant to be read and it's meant to be heard, but since this is from Jesus to us, it's also meant to be obeyed. It is written so that we might be changed, to install in us hope and faith and love as we are invited into this divine drama. The book of Revelation as a whole is a standing reminder that life is stronger than death, that hope cannot be conquered by despair, that eventually the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah, and that He will reign forever and ever. This letter offers us a fuller picture of Jesus, and we get to have our eyes and our ears open, even the eyes and ears of our hearts and our souls, so that we might obey. And what is important now is to recover our senses, that we must learn to see more, to hear more, and to feel more. By the way, I'm going to take a break right there. In this sermon, I can email it to you guys, but I have... uh, just so you know, not all these quotes are mine. I've quote, stolen a whole bunch of quotes. I'm just letting you know. I footnoted them, so I'm good. I'm not a plagiarist. But this, is, um, this letter, not only is it applicable to the seven churches that were written, it's also a living text. It was good for that church in the first century. It was good for that church in the first century. You know what? It was good for the church in the 10th century. It was good for the church in the 15th century. It was good for the church two years ago, and it's good for the church now, and if God gives us enough time, it'll be good for the church in 20, 30 years. This letter is alive, and it'll be good for years to come, just as it has been good for years past. It is applicable to us right now as we strive to live for Jesus. Revelation is not just a letter on how the end times are going to play out. In fact, I'm a pretty firm believer that most of what's written in there, like it's written in prophetic and, and weird language, a lot of it's already played out. And we'll get into that over time. But this is a script for those who want to follow Jesus with diligence until the day that Jesus comes back, and may he come back soon. Revelation has been used as a text to incite fear and pleas for repentance. I've seen this over and over and over again in my life. In fact, um, when Joanna first brought it to me, I was like, I don't want to get into it because it's just brought, it's got all that baggage of fear. And yet, Scripture tells us that it's God's kindness, not the fear of God, but God's kindness that is to lead us to repentance. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but that's not being scared. It's living out of the recognition of our place before our Lord and God and Maker and recognizing how big He is. Also, this letter is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but faithful discipleship in it. I didn't write that one. If we long to be faithful to Jesus, we get to know him better. And this book is going to help us get to know him better. That's my, that sounds like a quote from me because it's a little simpler. But Revelation is therefore also about being true to God, heeding the Holy Spirit as we follow Jesus Specifically, that we get to be faithful witnesses, that we get to resist the devil and his ways in this world, that we get to be attentive and listening and worship-infused, or, and that we get to be living and that we get to live out the mission that God has for us in the here and now. The second thing I want to point out about this letter is that Revelation is not just a letter, but it's also a prophetic vision. Not like minor pathetic. This one's prophetic vision. And prophetic visions are meant to wake us up. They're meant to get us out of our normal. And they're meant to wake us up. And it's not just for the future sense of things. Many have asked me, and maybe even some here, so where do you land on the end times? And I have to admit that as I was asked this question over and over and over again, and even like people recommend books on Revelation. Yeah, hey, hey there, I won't mention your name because I'm recording it. So, um, but the, the truth, they mentioned like, well, here, you got to figure out how you view the end times. And I don't know if I do because I, I'm not interested on like where I land on end times or how they even play out. I'm interested in how this mysterious book of the Bible is applicable to us in the here and now and how we get to have our lives changed by it. This, is, this scripture is helpful for all of life, all parts of it as we want to grow, not just the end times as many people would point out. The more I study the book of Revelation, the more I'm convinced that this book is vastly applicable to us today and not just the ways it applies to like how the end times are going to be playing, played out. This book is mysterious, but it is serious in the way it engages us to live for Jesus today. It encourages us to keep looking to Jesus, to see his throne, to be a faithful witness to a world that doesn't understand the grace that we strive to live within. This book is dangerous to the life of our soul because it wants to take the parts and it wants to destroy all that isn't living for Jesus so that we may see and act truly and wholly that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and that we are not a part of this earthly kingdom, but we are a part of God's kingdom forevermore. This helps, uh, the fact that it's a, a prophetic vision helps bring us to what I, that some have called the conversion of our imaginations. We lack imagination in our department, in, in, in this, don't we? Like, imagination is not our strongest suit. One of the major reasons why this book of the Bible is so hard to understand is because of the imagine, imaginative language used. The worship of a risen Christ is supposed to open us up. It's supposed to change the way we live. 
But far too often we suffer from a real lack of imagination. We start to take every single word literally. We imagine what a different life could look like. And I've heard the Christian life referred to as being boring, but revelation is anything but boring. Just, the, just like what I believe an actual Christian's life is anything but boring as we strive to hold on to Christ. Revelation invites us to imagine and then practice what we call, what would be called in our world, uncivil worship and witness, which means that we get to follow the Lamb, the Lamb is Christ, into the new creation that He has for us. The very heart of this apocalyptic vision is the unveiling of secrets and truths about God's perspective on a variety of uh, subjects, including justice and the problem of evil, and what God proposes to do about such matters. The the dominance of apocalyptic vision also reflects the deeply held conviction that God's people lived in dark times and God has matters in hand. That God will work for the believers even though we're not seeing this as perfectly evident. That God's plan can be revealed like a secret uh, for matters in human histories that were, are, were and are mysterious and extremely complex. And we are seeing this in our day and age. We are invited into this prophetic vision. It's a dreamlike state full of metaphors and symbols with a mix of, uh, of the apparent incoherence in it all. And if you've ever uh, invited someone to look at your dream or look at your life and you try and describe something, um, it's difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult for them to feel like to... to enter into that in a wholeheartedly, wholehearted way. And so as we enter into this dream and this vision, we do so with humility and mystery, willing to be wrong and willing to be corrected. We get to walk into the unknown and wander about in things that we don't fully understand. Or I can say it this way, we're in over our heads. Like we're just simply in over our heads and we get to try and walk it out. Revelation was written to exhort several groups of Christians who were apparently in badly of need of reassurance and encouragement and instruction. And we'll get to some of the history behind when I believe this book was written and some scholars agree, some disagree, that's the way scholarship works, right? But it was not just written to one church or one person. It was written for the seven churches. And we will see throughout this book that numbers play a big part of this. And numbers actually have more meaning than we might realize. But the the number of seven is the number of perfection or the number of completion. This means that this book was written for Grace and Mercy Church because God knew that this church would be here in all forms from three years ago to five years from now in all forms. God had this church in mind. And I believe this letter, it it gives me strong encouragement for local churches. Even the fact that there's a local church here, there's one across the street, there's one over there. Like God writes this letter to all of us and we get to be united in Christ. And I believe, um, and we get to have all our different flavors and styles, amen? Like it just gets to be different. Doesn't mean we need to argue with them or anything like that. We just get to be different. 
John believed that he was describing supernatural things as well as earthly realities. Though freely using metaphor and language, John is not describing a sort of heavenly parallel universe that, you know, to earth so that it it would like wage a war against earth and heaven or pit one another against each other. Rather, in his view, there is one struggle, both heavenly and earthly, both supernaturally and naturally, both divine, so godly, and human. And these forces interact with one another on a daily basis. The world is more than we see and know. And Revelation is not a book that is to bring fear. It brings a bigger picture in Christ and His kingdom. The language of the apocalypse is not descriptive, reverential, newspaper language, but it's expressive language of poetry which uses symbols and imagery and pneumology, numbers, to articulate a sense of feeling about this world that we live in. Revelation, it is a letter about a vision, and it is a prophecy. And these two things are not always clear in the, because of the use of symbols and metaphors. We're a few centuries removed from these symbols and metaphors. Most of us have tried to explain dreams, and we all know it's extremely difficult. We try to use emotional ranges to describe like what that actually felt like, and yet we still fall short. But th- and as this letter uses much dreamlike imagery, I hope that it, this vision will excite us to live more for Jesus Christ in our day-to-day. But this book is also a revelation. It's a revelation. It's by and about Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to have this bigger and more complete picture of who he is in this world. The word apocalypse means revelation or revealing, like showing who he he is. And this letter of revelation uses much of scripture in this revelation. One of the things that struck me in my study was that over and over about 400 references to previously written parts of the Bible are used in Revelation. Over 400. It uses Old Testament, all parts of the Old Testament, not just the minor and major prophets. It uses the Psalms like crazy. It uses the first five books of the Bible. It uses the New Testament. Every part, the Gospels, the parts that were written by Paul. It, re- it uses it all. Old and New Testament. There is actually barely anything new in Revelation. And this revelation about Revelation struck me, that there's barely anything new about Revelation. But I'll admit this, though. It's like it takes all the odd parts, all the difficult parts of Scripture to understand, and just says, here you go. Let me leave you with this one final book. And this will, as we realize this, this will help us in remembering that most of this letter has already been written and read Its material is not new. In fact, God has been trying to speak this to us through the entire Bible. And as we get to the end, it is like we are encouraged once again to walk into this mystery of our faith that in this Christian life, and and, uh, where once he's tried to use plainer words to describe it and walk it one step at a time, And yet we get to do this in mystery. And I believe that his grace is truly sufficient for us today to reveal this to us. The book of Revelation shows us that 
despair of our present trouble and chaos that Jesus has defeated evil and triumphed over evil on the cross and that he will one day complete the work. Our hope can be set on him because he is secure. He is our security. It is getting us ready to enter into conflict if we are not there. And for those who are there, it gives us hope in the midst of it. The apocalypse was written essentially as a testimony to God's plan in Christ for this world and to disclose by means of a series of visions the fulfillment of his salvation purposes in this world through his judgment both in history and eternity. In times of crisis, and I believe that the church and you know particularly the church in America, we are in a time of crisis that the church was entering a period of crucial conflict between the forces of evil epitomized by Rome as this book was written and the forces of good that were found in the church of Christ. And to meet this situation, the writer, John, exhorts his hearers to be steadfast in faith. And he fortifies their courage by revealing the ultimate destruction of the powers of evil and the perfect consummation of Christian hope established in the kingdom of God. And this is a beautiful thing. Revelation is full of mysteries in the modern sense of the world, of the word, and as well as in the special biblical sense of it. And like all mysteries, they alternately repel and attract. One thing about Revelation is some people love this mystery. They love to enter into it, whereas others rebel against it. Mysteries have a way of attracting all sorts of conspiracy theories, amen? Like when we don't have all the information, people will provide you that information whether they're wrong or right. And then they'll believe it wholeheartedly, again, whether they're wrong or right. But yet, those who love absolutes also tend to walk away from mystery as well. And we get to get comfortable stepping into mystery even though it is uncomfortable most of the time. There will be much that we don't understand in this book. There will be a great temptation to read into the text our own conspiracy theories and concepts as we try and figure this out. For those who like statements like, well, the Bible is crystal clear. Well, this book and this sermon series is not going to be for you, but I know that that's not us because none of us are crystal clear about much these days. But this book is not crystal clear. It's not easy to understand. And too many times, there have been too many end-time conspiracy theories that have been placed on the book that at times can taint our view of it. All of this, I believe, detracts from the glory and wonderment that we find in Christ in and throughout this book. All of this can detract from the book um, that it is for us today and is not just a book to be decoded or like I said earlier, solved like a Rubik's Cube, but it is a book to be lived. This book is concerned with our worship. It's also concerned with our works as a witness, the works that we've been saved unto. It's, it's concerned about the kingship and lordship of Christ and it seems to be more concerned with how we live in this life of worship rather than shaping our simple theological or practical understanding of end times. Jesus will judge us and he will comfort us in this letter. Controlling John's uh, testimony throughout the apocalypse is his underlying perception that God's salvation comes to his creation through judgment. 
Or as one commentator said, the thunder of creation and the love of God belong together. They're not separated. The idea of divine healing is present everywhere in this drama. And God wants our relationship with him to be made whole. He wants it to be made new and he wants it to be perfect. He is concerned for our soul. He desires a complete and whole relationship with him. He waits for his glory and our joy. And that's what he wants it for. God makes accessible to us to the believers, to the Christians, to the church as a whole. The living water, the tree, and the light of life. This is Jesus, and he is far bigger than we can imagine. I love that Jesus loves us so much to give us a fuller picture of who he is. We get to learn more about him so that we might become more like him. Now, before we get into Revelation on a weekly basis, there's a couple things mainly the history and the governments of the time that I think is important for us to know. This book, Revelation, was written to churches literally in the midst of chaos. Churches that were being persecuted by their governments. And I would, I would argue that we are in political chaos, not just here in the United States, but globally as well. Chaos comes from uncertainty. It comes from not knowing and then pretending that you do. Chaos comes from feeling that you are displaced in a world that you once thought you had a place in. The chaos of trying to understand how, who we are and how to live out this faith in this world sometimes doesn't mesh with our faith, and we're trying to just simply figure it out. And this is a letter to churches. Some he rebukes with harsh words. Some he encourages. And however you want to work, look at it, Jesus wants us to last. He wants us to last until he, he, we see him face to face. He wants us to remain faithful to him through any sort of life that may come at us. I've taken the view that this book was written somewhere in the mid-90s AD. This would um, have been written after AD 70 where the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed and during, it would be, have written during the reign of Domitian, the Roman Empire. And go ahead and do Google searches on Domitian. He is an interesting guy. The letter was written to churches who were governed by the Romans, and this leader was not very kind to Christians. In fact, you may have heard of Nero and his cruelty towards Christians, that he blamed Christians for the burning of Rome and then burned them on stakes and killed them and threw them into the arena. Domitian did much of the same thing. Nero ruled in AD 65, and we know that his disdain for Christians, he even went as far as burning them alive, and he was a truly evil ruler. In many ways, it is thought that Domitian is even more evil. Domitian was more evil. This book is written to Christians who are hated by their government because they do not worship the leader as the supreme being. Instead, they choose to worship Jesus. And by all accounts, Domitian declared himself God and ordered that all true Roman citizens pay homage or worship him. This likely would have taken place at the local temples. The local temples, by the way, and we'll get into this in the weeks to come, were places where 
where worship was held, but also the local hub for cultural activity. You would have gone and done business transactions there. You would have gone and your trade union would have been at the temple and you would have worshiped and paid taxes. You would have gotten your news and done all of your governmental duties at these temples. And Christians, because they would not worship, were ostracized because they would not participate with the local idolatrous culture who said, you must be like us. And they said, no, we already have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in one way, this letter of Revelation is highly political. And it is subversive to any kingdom of this world. And this is one reason why I'm excited, because as we enter into this election cycle, we are met with a book that reminds us that regardless of who we vote for, we are all under one ruler, and his name is Jesus Christ. This is more unifying than earthly or American politics. As Christians, we get to show our respect to the governments, to be certain we get to obey the rules, but we also don't look at our country as our savior. Our president, he is our president, but he is not our savior. We serve and we can show allegiance and live by the rules of this other kingdom where we are sojourners and foreigners. But if following the nation's laws mean that we break God's laws, then we follow God, no longer our government. Amen? In fact, if we are patriots at all, if we are patriots at all, as Christians, then we are patriots of Jesus and his coming kingdom, not the kingdom here and now. The religion of their day, when it was written, it was highly political. In fact, um, the, each of these seven cities that, the, that they were written to, they were major hub cities. They had major shrines there devoted to the worship of the Roman Empire. And these places of worship um, were served by priests and priestesses alike. And as people would have worshipped and gathered and congregated at these ri- Uh, religious establishments, the Christians' absence was noticed. It was noticed. They would be set apart and different, no longer worshiping in the same way as they once did in their culture. They were literally changed and renewed. They were plucked out of that kingdom and placed into a different kingdom. And our, our culture has this very thing, except I believe it's more subversive. Politics and religion here in the United States intertwine in a sort of syncretistic system with two sides. The Christians on the right of politics can't see how, they, how the people on the left can call themselves Christians. And those on the left politically feel the same way about the right. And we are dividing each other instead of, um, we are divided against one another of those who feel different than us instead of being united in worshiping Jesus. We have Christians on the right who love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And we have Christians on their left who love Jesus with all their heart, soul, and mind. And as their conscience dictates and allows, they can do that. And yet politics have to play a distant second or third or even beyond that to our joint kingdom where Jesus is the Christ, the King, and the ruler. And we can recognize in this that policies don't solve problems, even if they help a little. But Jesus coming back to rule and reign 
That will solve the problems of evil in this world. There are no political answers that will ultimately satisfy. They will just need to, they will lead to another need for more answers. And this revelation uh, final, has the final answer on politics that Jesus is king and earthly kings are not. And to fail to fellowship with one's neighbor in the temple during that time, in the temple feast, was antisocial. In fact, it was unpatriotic. Even go as far as because they didn't worship in the way everyone else did, Christians were called atheists because they believe in this unseen God. And this is why governments all over the world view the Bible as a subversive book because this book says earthly kingdoms and kings are second to God's kingdom as brought about by Jesus Christ. And it's reasonable, it's a reasonable suggestion that some if not much of John's audience, seemed to be compromising too much. They seemed to be a little bit more syncretistic than they were supposed to be with than the values that Jesus would have. Revelation would thus come to, be an in, come to interrupt and interject their situation and part them from the Greco-Roman communities who were worshiping false gods. John wanted more cultural dislocation not less. Wanted us to be separate, to set up, be set apart, to be holy. And since seven is one of the major reoccurring images in John's vision, both explicitly and implicitly, the number seven is the symbol for completeness or wholeness and fullness. It is possible that Revelation was written for the entire church, of which the seven churches in Asia Minor were just paradigms. And this would not only make the wider church part of John's part of his audience, but it would also extend to the audiences throughout Christian history, including us. Not only that, the churches in Asian Minor would have uh, had a decent mix of people. It wouldn't have just been Jews. It wouldn't have just been Greeks. It wouldn't have just been Romans or Germans or anybody. And it wasn't strictly Jewish or Gentile. There would have had G Greek, Roman, Jewish, and other nationalities as well. I think of Ethiopians. I think of different parts of the world where they just would have been. The North African church was very strong. And this, I believe, is an argument, just the fact that this exists, that every nation, tribe, and tongue will be represented in the church of Christ as they were represented in these seven churches. This is a very strong argument against racism. Amen? This is a super strong argument. So, in closing, I'm sorry that I've gone way longer. I just didn't want to do this in two parts. Here's what we will not do as we look at this letter. Much to some chagrin, we will not make charts or graphs. We're not going to have end times calendars like a countdown. I find it a false way to look at this book. We will not, uh, it's, like, um, it's like when we do that, we're looking past Jesus to find out what it'll be like for us. It will be difficult. Just deal with it. It will be difficult and God's grace will be sufficient. And I believe that we're, if we focus on just end times and trying to figure it all out, then our focus will be wrong. Another thing that we will not do during this, this, going through this letter, we will not find out when Jesus is coming back. Sorry, no dates. Some of you guys may come up with them along the way, I'm sure. But no dates. We won't find out when Jesus is coming back, but we'll continue to ask him every week that he come back soon. Sooner rather than later. Amen? 
The other thing that we're not going to do is be rigid on our view of end times. If you are pre, post, or all-millennial, um, or if you, like, if you don't know what those words mean, you might like this sermon series better. But if you are one of those things, you already come with a view on the end times, that's awesome. Keep your view. I really, it's, it's great. You can, we can talk about it, but we're, we're not going to fight about it. We get to allow everyone to have their own views since we're entering um, a, a time and a season and discussing some things that haven't happened yet. And as a church, we get to lean into the mystery of what is to come since tomorrow isn't even promised to us. Here's what we will do walking through this book. We'll walk in humility. We'll stand corrected by Scripture rather than get offended by it. We will walk slowly, prayerfully, and attentively, careful to be hearers and doers of God's Word. We will continue to keep Christ as the center. And, and starting next week, we are going to pray before each and every sermon these words to help keep us on track, and we will stand each week and pray this. We will say this together. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. And blessed are the readers, hearers, and keepers of this word. We will need these prayers as we enter into this letter. And as a reminder, as we close this initial sermon, the sermon series is entitled Revelation, a letter from Jesus about Jesus to churches in chaos. And I wanted a title that will keep us centered on Christ and help keep us on track. There will be times, I promise you there will be times as we go through this book where we are tempted to get off track and things might get a little weird. But if we are centered on Christ and not things like numbers or symbols, Christ will uh, being centered on him, I believe that this will be important. So next week, here we go, Revelation 1. So you guys can go ahead and read ahead if you'd like. Jesus, I thank you that you have brought us to a letter that is from you, about you, to churches in chaos, Lord. I feel like the stability of the Psalms and was so beautiful and now entering into a time where I personally feel just a little bit of... Um, lack of stability. I thank you that you can enter into our chaos and you can just be there. That you can be the King of kings and Lord of lords. That you can be the ruler. That you can usher in this new kingdom that you have. That you can be the lion and the lamb. That you can be the tree, the light, the city. That you can be it all for us. So that you might be our all in all. In Jesus' name, amen.